So who likes to be happy? It's a bunch of unhappy looking people. Can I get a hand in the air? Who likes to be happy? Who's feeling happy currently? Who wants to what? Choir? Who wants to be happy later today after their afternoon nap? That alarm came early this morning. Can I get an amen? Amen. Uh, This morning we're going to spend our time together in Psalm chapter 1. In Psalm chapter 1. So if you want to go ahead and open up your copy of Scripture or your app on your digital device, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 1 this morning. And we're going to look specifically at the way Psalm chapter 1 talks about the blessed life. The blessed life. See, I think that um, as we raised our hands and as the choir hooted and hollered and um, we thought about happiness and what that looks like for us, I would say in general that everyone wants a happy life. Everybody wants one. One that is marked with good things. We want to pile up good stuff. We want to be around good people. We want those things to be widely known so that we'll have a good reputation. And often we want, this, uh, we want this for our own happiness. We want these things, we want our happiness, and we want, it, we want it for us. Maybe for our ease, or for our comfort, or maybe even to know that we have been affirmed, that God knows us and that he loves us. And so in some ways, receiving uh, that happiness, receiving those good things that we think bring, uh, bring us happiness, they let us know that God loves us, that he cares for us, and that he, he knows us. So we see happiness, and we maybe feel it internally, but we also look at it from the outside. We would say that somebody who has happiness, they are blessed. They have received blessing. And so we would um, think of the idea of, of blessing as prosperity or goodness or favor that is shown to someone. Maybe a good thing that is done or a surprise that has been, that has been unearned. We see happiness as an emotion. Maybe um, it's the absence of sadness or sorrow. And we see blessing as this thing that we can view from the outside and we look on in people's lives and we see they're happy. We look at the things that are kind of orchestrated in their life circumstances. We think that they're blessed. So they're blessing. They've been blessed. They look happy. But honestly, this idea of blessing and happiness, they go hand in hand and it's more than just good circumstances, and it's more than waking up in the morning feeling upbeat like today is going to be a good day. Blessing and happiness, they are a condition of the heart. It's a posture that's at the core of of who we are. See, when we view blessing or being blessed from the outside, we see these type of things that we look at in other people's lives, and, and, and we're jealous of them. We want the kind of happiness or to experience the kind of blessing or ease that we see in other people's lives and often miss the opportunity to to experience that personal blessing and happiness and contentment that God has offered to us. So Psalm 1, the passage that we're going to look at today, it teaches us that a happy life, a blessed life, isn't just a thing that other people can look on the outside and see in us, even though they can at times. But it's really internal. It's personal. It's at the the heart of who we are. This is the kind of blessing. This is the kind of blessing and the kind of happiness 
that enabled Jesus to talk in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, or blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are meek, those things that we would look at from outside circumstances, and we would say poorness and mourning and even some circumstances of meekness, those wouldn't carry kind of the attributes of external happiness, But blessedness, blessedness and happiness that comes from the Lord, it's this internal component, this internal posture that the Lord Lord gives us. So the writer of the text, he lays out two ways of living, as we're going to read here in just a second. He calls them the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. So if you'll read along with me in uh, Psalm chapter 1, and we're just going to look at verses 1 through 4 this morning. Says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So we want to see first, as we look at this passage together today, that the blessed life is one that is marked by things that are not done. The blessed life is marked by things that are not done. And we see this in, in verse 1 really clearly. There's a lot of um, kind of uh, nor um, negative statements that are listed there. So it says, the blessed life is marked by one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, who doesn't stand in the way of sinners, who doesn't sit in the seat of of scoffers. So we see that the blessed life, the person who's blessed, doesn't walk, sit, or stand with wicked sinners or scoffers. We see these kind of verbs and the words that accompany them, they kind of all go together. And there's a commentator, his name's uh, David Kidner. He takes these words and he translates them into a common understanding for us today. So he would say, um, walk, walk, stand, and sit. We could translate into thinking, doing, being. Walking, sitting, standing, thinking, doing, being. So walking would be this kind of participatory along the way. Standing would be sitting in a, being in a stationary place where you would be surrounded by such things. Sitting would be partaking, investing yourself in. So you see this sort of linear progression that happens here. And I want to pick these words apart kind of one at a time. But you see this linear progression of walking, standing, sitting, thinking, doing, being. You can shake those down to our thoughts, our actions, and our identity. So first, the righteous doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Some questions that would come along for us as we um, consider this idea is, whose voices do we allow into our lives? Who do we listen to? And what is that advice based on? What thoughts do we let creep in as a possibility that fully develop into a viable, actual, potentially worst-case scenario within our lives? These thoughts, these things that we take and we internalize, they open the door for temptation to asserting our independence like we have no need for God. This idea of thinking, of not walking in the counsel of the wicked, these are questions that we have to ask. Who are we listening to? What voices are we value and validating? Whose words are shaping the way that we respond to circumstances, the way that we interact with those in our lives? 
whose words are shaping maybe the thoughts that we have toward God. Not just about ourselves or those that we interact with, but how we view the one who has created us. The writer of the psalm tells us that the blessed life, the person who is blessed, doesn't walk in the, in the counsel of the wicked, doesn't listen to voices that are outside of God's plan or God's desire for us. So if we're going to look at the wicked, we're going to look specifically at the ungodly, things that, that are counter to God, that are the opposite of God's design or God's desire. The blessed man doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, doesn't listen to things that are opposite of God's design or intention for us. So instead of walking in the counsel of the wicked, the wise person seeks God-given wisdom, seeks God-given wisdom. James uh, chapter one tells us that God is never changing, that he is consistently the same. And that if we desire wisdom, we desire to know what is right and true and good, that we can ask him. And the scriptures tell us that like a good father, he graciously gives wisdom to us. So while we may look for an ear that will listen or a mouth that will maybe appease what we are currently feeling, that will speak against maybe our insecurities or our discomforts, or will speak into decision-making in a way that is easy and brings about maybe the expected change, that may not always be the right way. We see that pursuing wisdom is pursuing God, asking him to be the giver of wisdom in our lives not just asking for a listening ear. So we see thinking. Second, we see doing. Doing. The righteous doesn't stand in the way of sinners. This moves us on progression. It moves from taking a thought and it moves it into active reality. Actions with consequences that affect us and affect others. This is moving from an untempered thought or temptation into acting on it and sinning against God and sinning against others. This is when a thought comes into our minds and we may evaluate it, we may hear it, we may hear that voice, we may even take in a thought and initially address it knowing that it's not God's design or God's best for us. But the more we think about it, the more we validate it, the more we hear it, the more we not only know that that voice is creeping up behind us, but we actually ask it to creep up behind us because maybe that thought that we had or the advice that was given to us by another It was easier. It was actually the thing I wanted. It would bring comfort. It would bring immediate happiness in a way that others would be able to look at me and be able to see the happiness that I have. It's moving from a thought to an action, from something that's ethereal and mental into actually putting it into practice, acting it out in front of others, and in so offending God and potentially offending others. This doing... This doing is different. It's not just considering, it's moving. It's not just being tempted, it's it's moving forward into action. The psalmist tells us that the blessed person doesn't stand in the way of sinners, but in contrast, he acts with God-honoring intentions. So the question isn't, what will bring me the most acceptance? What will bring me the most popularity? what will cause me to be well-respected by my supervisors or my peers or even my family. The question is, what truly honors God? What reflects the nature that he has given me and the relationship that I have with him? The third is being. 
The blessed life, the blessed person doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. So the righteous doesn't sit with them. This is a life that is characterized by opposition toward God and the things of God. Thoughts are moved to actions and actions are turned into a habitual lifestyle. It's not just what we do, it becomes who we are. So it's not even like we have to entertain a thought that then moves into an action. It becomes a reflex response to life and circumstances. Thinking, doing, being. Thoughts, actions, identity. This life is characterized by a hardened heart. A heart that has a difficult time listening to wise counsel. A heart that won't hear wisdom that comes from the Lord. That's hardened towards others. That is slow to repent and confess wrong both to God and to those to whom we have offended. This is a slippery slope, friends. What we think determines what we do. What we do paves the way for who we are and what we will become. We've experienced these life lessons personally. There are things that you can think about in your own life circumstance where you step back and you take a look and you ask yourself, how did we end up here? How did I end up here in the first place? And often it can be traced back to one thought that was entertained and held at bay. And one action that was just a step, a tiptoe forward outside of God's will or design for your life that then has led into an identity who you see yourself as. No longer are you a son or daughter who is loved and valued by your creator God, but you are now a person that is held captive by that thing that was once just a thought. It may be a decision that you've made in your family. It may be one that is widely known, or it may be a decision that no one else knows. But it's shaped your identity, and it's holding you hostage. The blessed life is the one who doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, who sits and plants firmly among those who are opposed to God and his will and his design. But the blessed person, he, he lives life from a God-purposed identity. The idea that God has created you, that he knows you, that he actually does have good plans for you, that he intends to pursue and work out through you. Living from that purpose, that identity. Kidner kind of takes this uh, progression again, and he, he moves it in three parts. He says it goes from accepting godly advice to embracing godly ways to adopting ungodly attitudes. We've seen this in our lives. We've seen this contrast. And as we pursue blessing, we see that it may often look opposite of what we think this passage should be telling us to do, to just listen to those who are around us. Take the easy way. Don't pay attention to the things that you're letting into your life. Don't question or assess, is this God's good? Is this God's design? Is this God's purpose for you? And just mindlessly move forward. So the blessed life is marked by things that we don't do, but the blessed life is also marked by things that we do. So look in in verse two with me here. This says, but his delight, the blessed man, is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So the life of the blessed man doesn't do those things, but in contrast, it does delight in the law of the Lord or the instruction of the Lord. If you think about um, the time in which this text was written, 
It's likely that the writer of this psalm only had the first five books of the Bible uh, to say that he was delighting in the law of the Lord, right? So think about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We see a lot of God's character. Um, We see a lot of God's care in those passages, but we also read some really, really tough texts, okay? Think about about, um, Deuteronomy. Think about uh, Leviticus, these ways that God really carefully crafted and shaped how he would interact with his people and how people should interact with one another. But they're not the easiest things to read in the world. We see, um, we see law, we see consequence for disobedience, we see this kind of back and forth movement between God and his people. But the writer of the psalm says that the blessed man delights in the law of the Lord. And we're not living in a time where we just have these first five books, but where we see the whole counsel of God, God's perfect revelation to us of himself. The blessed man delights in what God shows us of himself. Not only does he delight in it, this passage says that he meditates on it. He just can't get it out of his mind. He thinks about it when he wakes up. He thinks about it through the day. He thinks about it when he goes to bed. He thinks about God's character, his care, his love for people. He thinks about how in disobedience to God, there is repercussion for our offenses towards him. But God still in his loving forbearance toward us, he has made a way. Now, when the psalm was written, the way that was made was through a system that required um, continual ritual and sacrifice over and over and over again. But for us, he has made a way through the person of Jesus Christ, a sacrifice that was offered once and for all, that God himself would put on flesh, that he would live in perfection, the life that he intended for all of us to live. And then that Jesus would take upon himself the wrongdoing of all mankind, of all humans, And then would die on a cross paying the price for our sin, for our offenses towards God. That he would then exchange his righteousness for our sinfulness. He would exchange our offense for his perfection. That God has made a way. And that the blessed man would would meditate on this, would not be able to get it out of his mind, and that it would shape his thoughts, his actions, his responses, that it would inform the way that he thinks, the things that he does, the identity that he conforms to. The blessed man does delight in God's revelation. He takes joy, he takes joy in God's giving of himself. He doesn't look at the scriptures as a way that God has restricted us or is holding us back, or keeping us from from happiness. But he looks at God's word as an invitation into the fullest of life, with an uninterrupted relationship with the God who has created us and who loves us. He does meditate on it throughout the day. He defaults to a dependent posture. I can't do this on my own. I have to be dependent on you in the way that you have revealed yourself to me, God. So we see that a blessed life is marked by things that are not done and also by things that are done. I want to stop for just a second and kind of talk about, um, and talk about this book, to talk about the Bible, God's word to us, the grace that he extends to us through his scriptures. Through the Bible, we see God's nature. We see his character. We see a history of his rich work for us that is finished on the cross. Through the Bible, we're encouraged. We read passages about the um, unending love of God toward us that endures forever. We read passages that tell us that it is the kindness of the Lord that draws us into repentance. 
We read pl- passages that tell us about the plans that God has for us, that we were created with the purpose of, of good works that were to be carried out in our lives, that there is a plan for us outside of who we are. We read the scriptures and we're encouraged. We're also corrected. We're inspired. We're refocused. We read passages like Hebrews 4.12 that tell us that the scriptures are living and active. It's like, it's like a breathing organism that purposes into us, that cuts the deepest parts of who we are. Into the core of our being, the scriptures speak truth and life. It teaches us, it trains us, and it also constantly reminds us, the scriptures do, of our need for Jesus. We see that the fullness of God's instruction to us is in the person of Jesus Christ himself. So we read any passage of scripture, we read the first five books of the Bible the way that the psalmist did whenever they wrote it, and we see that those things are all fulfilled in the person and the perfect work of Jesus. That he came and he lived in completeness the way that God had intended for us to come and live. So when we look at, when, when we're living life and we're wondering how God would have us to respond in a certain circumstance or a certain situation, we look to his word and we look to the perfect revelation of Jesus and we see that answer. When we want to know how we're to interact with our family and respond towards opposition when we're sitting around the dining room table, we look to God's word, we look to the person of Jesus and we see that answered. When we're confronted with fear and insecurity, we look to Jesus, we, we look to God's word and we see how to respond to that. And when we want to know how to have a relationship with our creator God, we look to God's word. We look to the person of Jesus and we see. Now we we get to this point in the passage, we get to chapter, uh, we get to verse three of chapter one. And I I just love, I love this. I love this section here. Read with me. This is uh, chapter one, verse three. He, the blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all he does, he prospers. The blessed life is like a healthy tree. I think about, um, when I I read this passage, I think about um, our family likes to go to national parks. Any national park people out there? You like to, yeah. Um, We just like to go and kind of take in God's creation. We do some of the historic trail stuff every now and then as long as, our four loving children will tolerate it. Um, and we'll, we'll see some, some old structures that are built on national park territory. But oftentimes we're just driving through and we're taking it in the scenery. We like to go in the fall where you can see the changing of the color of, of the leaves. Oftentimes we get up there a little too late. So we're just looking at bare tree branches, but that's the goal in the first place. But when I read this, this verse here, I think about the many stops that we have made, even, even thinking about Smoky Mountain National Park. I think about the many stops that we've made and we'll venture off toward a creek and, and we'll get down toward the water and you'll see these huge trees that are there and you'll see exposed roots that are there just kind of diving into the water. That Maybe even a picture like this that are diving into the water and the trees are big and they're strong and they're flourishing and they're receiving everything that they need for life. This passage tells us that the blessed man He's like a tree that's planted by rivers of water, not just one, but more than one. So should one river dry up, the tree will still be provided for. 
The tree receives the nutrients it needs from the water at its roots and through the sun in the clearing above to give it every single thing that it needs for a good and healthy life. Every single thing. We see that this tree, it doesn't just grow. It doesn't just stand still and move upward. But this passage tells us that the blessed man, his life looks like a tree that stands tall and that is well nourished, but at the same time, it bears fruit in in its season. Fruit that comes not too early for fear of frostbite, or not too late so that it will be harvested, harvested when it's still unripe, but at just the right time the fruit is born. And that its leaves, its leaves don't even have any idea what drought looks like. That there would no, be no source of, of water or hydration to its roots or that the sun would disappear. That this is the healthiest possible example that we could imagine of any tree-like structure. This is what the blessed life looks like. The blessed man looks like is here in this passage. There are several different um, spots throughout Scripture where we get this kind of agrarian, um, I think I'm using that word correctly, agrarian pictures um, that has to do with agriculture. Agrarian pictures of what the Christian life looks like. Um, John uh, chapter 15 is one of the most well-known ones and um, one that just can't be passed over. We, we see that Jesus is saying that he is divine and that we are the branches, that those of us who remain in him, we will bear much fruit. We will, our lives will bear the fruit of produce that look like the person of Jesus, that bear his character and his image and his name. But this makes so much sense for us that word pictures like this are used throughout scripture in terms of the Christian life and plants and growing Because that dead seed, before that tree was produced, that dead seed laying there by itself could never produce any single thing on its own. It would just remain a dead seed, much like many of the acorns that I have fall in my driveway around Christmas and wintertime. They just lay there. They cannot do a single thing on their own. They get crushed by our car. Never once are they just going to produce a tree and grow up on their own, just laying there in the midst of our driveway or even laying on the edge of a riverbank. But that dead seed is dependent on the richness of the soil in which it is planted, the water which hydrates it, the sun which pours down into it and causes its processes to all take place. That seed is completely dependent on something outside of itself. And that's a complete picture of us, friends. Not one thing could we ever do that is, that is truly good on our own. Not one thing. We're 100 completely dependent on the goodness of God through the person of Jesus in our lives for any good thing to come forward. That that dead seed which we were is planted in the intricate love of God through the person of Jesus. Only then would it bear fruit, would it, would it spring forth and bear fruit like a tree that is unending without water with sun shining down upon it. That in its season it bears fruit reflecting of the good nature by which it was planted. Only in that season. We are dependent creatures, you and I. I don't like that. I don't like being dependent on someone outside of myself. We are dependent creatures that are constantly striving to assert our independence in little ways and in big ways. We like to act like we are in no need of God or power outside of ourselves when this is exactly what God has created us for. 
and the reason for which he offers us relationship with himself through Jesus. We are in need. Then we get to the end of uh, verse 3. This last little sentence in here, and guys, this sentence, it gets me every single time. It says, in everything that he does, he prospers. Okay, so I work through the first three uh, verses of this passage, and it says, um, uh, uh, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Okay, check. Um, he doesn't stand in the way of sinners. Okay, I, I can do that. Check. Um, who doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. All right, I, I, can, I can do that. Um, check. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. I, I like the Bible. I like it. Um, he meditates on it day and night. All right, I'm going to try really hard to think about God's word in this scripture. When I get up in the morning and before I go to bed and throughout the day, I'm going to try really, really, really hard to do that. And that tree, that tree picture, right? We read that about the well-watered tree, the tree that's growing strong and big with big produce, with green leaves. I like that picture. I want to be that tree. But then I get to this verse and it says, in everything that he does, he prospers. Yeah, I don't know what a day like that looks like. Anybody know what a day like that looks like? And everything that you do, you prosper. It's like a day when you wake up and every single thing that you touch, it just turns to gold, right? It goes exactly the way that you want it to or the way that it was intended to go. I wake up in the morning and I wake up next to my beautiful wife, Holly, and I say, good morning, sweetheart. And she rolls over to me and she says, you're the best thing I have ever seen in my entire life. Thank you for waking up next to me this morning. I walk out of my room and the kids are all filing down the stairs in nice, neat order, completely dressed, teeth brushed, hair combed. And they say, good morning, Father. We are so great. We are so thankful that we get to wake up this morning and you are one of the first things that we see. Thank you for being our Father. Then I come to, to the office. I come to work. And my leadership here, it's just, it's like the best thing anybody has ever seen. And they just keep asking for more. You know what I mean? There's no complaint. There's no disagreement. Every thought that comes out is just the exact right thought at the right time. And counseling situations when I'm meeting with people, it's always the right word at the right time. And then I go home and dinner's on the table. And not just like, not just like Sloppy Joe's, even though I do love Sloppy Joe's. But Thanksgiving, every single night, <laughs> I don't feel like that's too much to ask. And everything he does, he prospers. I get to this verse and I read it and I think about what the everything looks like for me. Can you think about the everything, what it looks like for you? In everything that I do, in everything that you do, we prosper. I get to that verse and, and I go through my kind of mental checklist of those first three verses and I think I can do that. I can work on my own. I can do that. I can, I can make that happen. I can be careful about the things that I think and the things that I do and the identity that I shape or invest in. I can really value God's word. I can do those things. I can do those things. I want to be like that tree. But then I get to that last sentence in verse three where it says, in everything that he does, he prospers. And I'm given this little microcosm of life. 
that I may think I may be able to do all of those things on my own, but that there has only been one person in all of history that in every single thing that he does, he prospers. That even in his death, he rose in victory. And that person's name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. That if there would be any way that I would pursue happiness or blessing or prosperity, that there is no way that I can do it apart from the person of Christ. Now, what's hard is you read the rest of the Psalms and the psalmist and, and, and David, he asks these questions over and over again. Why do, the wicked, why do the wicked prosper? Why do good things happen to really horrible people that do horrible things? And this then again shifts us back to that lens and mentality that, that blessedness or happiness can only be observed from the outside. When one, God's word tells us is that we are a blessed people because God has given us relationship with himself, has offered us into his family by Jesus. We're blessed because of that. Now, that doesn't mean that we're always going to look like the tree, that things are always going to be perfect, that I'm going to get every single last thing that I want. Oftentimes, honestly, folks, it's in the midst of blessing that we experience some of the deepest difficulty. Things are really, really, really hard. And it's in the midst of those difficult, compressed situations that our character shines and that fruit is actually born. And those really, really hard times. This is why we can't just look at happiness and blessing in a way that it's just by what we see on the outside. It is a condition, it is a posture of the heart that is defined by God and given to us in Jesus. This sentence reminds me that I am responsible for the seconds that God has given me in this life. I'm responsible for them. And I have to constantly ask the question, am I going to choose the way of the wicked? Am I going to walk and pursue the way of the wicked? Or am I going to pursue the way of the righteous? Am I going to pursue Jesus? Or am I going to pursue Judgment. Am I going to pursue blessing or am I going to pursue the curse? I have to ask myself that question every single day. And as I do that, I see that I'm delighting in God's truth for me, that I'm, I'm, I'm meditating on his word, that we would pursue the righteousness that can only be found in the person of Jesus. So the, the writer of this psalm, he says, the blessed man looks like this really big, awesome tree. But then in verse four, he says, the wicked are not like that. They're, they're actually the opposite, but they're like the chaff that the wind drives away. So this is a picture of chaff. If you have not seen chaff before, maybe that's not, that is chaff. So chaff is, um, is the casing that is around wheat, essentially. So when wheat is harvested, the chaff is what is left over. And the chaff is pretty much useless. It just kind of blows away. It's, it's, it's meant to protect the sheaves of wheat, but after the wheat's been harvested, it's just kind of like the leftovers. And so for us, it's like this, it, we don't see chaff very often, but we live in the South and we have hay. Do you guys know what hay is? 
Yeah, hay has lots of great purposes, but have you ever seen a hay truck going down the road and what's going on behind it? There's just like this dust of hay that's kind of enveloping your car, or we see the results of it lying along the side of the road. We would see that the way of the wicked, the unblessed life, is just like that hay. Just like it. It's chasing around after the wind and landing in no place of determination. It's just moving around on its own. It's useless. It's dead. No life can actually be brought back to it. It may serve a purpose at one point in time, but in its kind of whirlwind of life that follows afterwards, it's not leading in any direction, but just lands wherever it may. The unblessed life is just like that. While the life of blessing and happiness bears fruit and looks sturdy and steady and mature like that tree, the unblessed life, it whirls around and lands where it will. I want to drill this down just a little bit as we, as we finish up here this morning. And I want you to think about what we're talking about here, okay? As we read uh, the beginning of Psalm 1, and it talks about not um, walking in the way of the wicked or standing with sinners or sitting in the seat of the scoffer, a, a lot of these things that we're talking about are things that infiltrate our mind and they are lived out in who we are. A lot of things that we can experience that we then validate and internalize as truth. Because the contrast that we see here, we see one in verse one, we see the man, the unblessed man, the wicked, is the one who is pursuing any answer that he can get, any opinion, any experience that could define how he should respond and how he should live. But the blessed man, the blessed man, he pursues consistent unchanging truth in God's revelation of himself through his word and through his son, Jesus. And we live in a day where truth and experience, one of them always wins, always wins. Sometimes our experience louds, yells so loudly at us that it tells us that experience is truth. What I physically have in front of me and even the way I perceive or define it in my reality is actual truth. So we think that thought, we pursue those actions and it shapes our identity and even how we relation, live in relationship with God. Friends, we can't let our experience define our truth. Our truth must define our experience. We live in a day and time where turning to a a Bible like this, a, a book like this, that has lasted through centuries of God's revelation to us, through centuries, where we look to it and we say that we trust it and we know that it is God's goodness to us and God's goodness for us, that it's authoritative and that at times we don't even like what it says, that it tells me I have to love those who hate me, not just those who love me, that it tells me I have to humble myself toward others the way that Jesus humbled himself toward me. The things that this book, that God's revelation to us tells me are not the easiest things to do. It would be easier for my experience to shape my truth and for that to be acted out in my life. For me to not act in humility, but for me to act in aggression and pride. For me to not act in love, but to act in complete and only self-preservation. 
We delight in God's word and we meditate on his truth because it is true for all people, for all time, in all places. And it is good for us. The experiences that God offers us in life in those seconds that we spend throughout the day, they must all be informed by the truth of his word and his revelation to us in Jesus. We cannot shape or distort or contort God's word to simply fit where it does in our life experience. Are you following me on this? We're going to define something as truth and God has already defined it for us in the giving of his word and in the giving of his son. We look at words like wicked in this passage or sinner or scoffer and we automatically think of people out there. We think of the world. We think of influence that comes from the other side. We think of people that are intentionally and and viciously against the person and things of God. We think about the other, right? But we have to remember that that's us. We are the wicked, we are the sinner, we are the scoffer. All of us apart from Jesus. That's who we are. And so we turn to God through the person of Jesus. We repent of our independence. We don't just pursue happiness or blessing, but we pursue Jesus, the way of Jesus. We live life following his footsteps, following his way. And in doing so, we receive blessing. We receive maturity. We receive growth. We produce fruit. Never just by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Nobody has ever talked to a dead seed in a way that a dead seed would turn into a full-out grown tree that's bearing produce with big green leaves. That, that seed is dependent on something, and we are people who are dependent on God, on the person of Jesus. I want you to think through three things personally as we finish up. Three things. And these are just questions. We're going to toss them up on the screen. You may want to write them down and think about them later. But just three things as we finish this up. The first is, in what ways are you pursuing happiness or blessing or content life apart from dependence on the work of Jesus? This is a healthy question to ask. And you're going to identify something. You're going to say that you've been chasing happiness in one way or another. And this is God revealing to us things that we are propping up in his place that he then calls us away from and calls us back toward himself. The second would be this. What thoughts, actions, or identity do you need to turn from as you turn to Jesus? What thoughts, actions, or identity do you need to turn from as you turn to Jesus? And then the last is this. What truth do you need to delight in and meditate on? What truth do you need to delight in and meditate on. These questions, these questions are merely tools that just help dissect the inner parts of our hearts. They point out what we worship. They show us where we're finding happiness. And then this text offers us a space for our lives to be reoriented, to be recalibrated the way that God has intended them to be ordered and lived. 
that we would be dependent on him, on his revelation of himself to us through his word and through Jesus. Because we know at the end of the day, while it may look like happiness and prosperity is what's happening in our lives or in the lives of those who are around us, none of those things are possible apart from God's intricate love and care for us in Jesus. We pray with me, friends. Father, this morning, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's truth and that it's not always easy to hear or to digest. It's easy to look at this passage as just kind of a compare and contrast between the one who would follow you and the one who doesn't. When in reality, God, this passage calls us to such a deep, unending dependence upon you, period. That you are our source of life. You are our source of health. That the only way to happiness, to blessing, prosperity is only through you, God. We thank you that you have sent your son Jesus to buy us and redeem us back away from those things that pull for our attention. Those thoughts, those actions, those identities that are apart from what you have called us to and, and created us for. And God, we pray that as we hear your word, that we would each respond to your word, that we would turn to you, turn away from those things and turn to you in belief, in repentance. God, asking us to give us asking you to give us all that you have for us, not what we desire, but what you desire for us. God, we pray that your word would speak clearly to us, that we would follow the leading of your spirit. We thank you, Jesus, that you are our righteousness. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.